Hi, everyone, and welcome to Allocator's Edge, a TVP mini series where we will be engaging in conversations with the world's top capital allocators. In this ever changing landscape of heightened inflation and interest rates, we aim to unravel how and why capital allocators make the decisions that they do. Join us as we explore the nuances between healthcare foundations, examining the impact of inflation on endowments, and the strategic choices between share buybacks and dividends for pension schemes. In this mini-series, we aim to shed light on the inner workings of capital allocation, helping both investment teams and listeners gain a better understanding of mandates, global interplay, and the intricate dance between strategy and reality. New episodes of Allocator's Edge will be released on alternating Thursdays, just as we've done with mini-series in the past. This is marketing material for financial professionals and professional clients only. The material is not intended to provide and should not be relied on for accounting, legal, or tax advice or investment recommendations. Reliance should not be placed on any views or information in the material when taking individual investment and or strategic decisions. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. It may not be repeated. Diversification cannot ensure profits or protect against loss of principle. The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Exchange rate changes may cause the value of investments to fall as well as rise. Investing in emerging markets and securities with limited liquidity can expose investors to greater risk. Private assets investments are only available to qualified investors who are sophisticated enough to understand the risk associated with these investments. This material may contain forward-looking information such as forecasts or projections. Please note that any such information is not a guarantee of any future performance, and there is no assurance that any forecast or projection will be realized. The views and opinions contained herein are those of the individual to whom they are attributed, and may not necessarily represent views expressed or reflected in any other Schroeder's communications, strategies, or funds. Any reference to regions, countries, sectors, stocks, or securities is for illustration purposes only, and not a recommendation to buy or sell any financial instruments or adopt a specific investment strategy. Hi, everyone, and welcome to our first episode of Allocator's Edge. We're kicking things off with Andy Evans interviewing our first guest, Greg Schuler, the CIO of Geisinger, a regional healthcare foundation. Greg got a start in the oil and gas industry, which he credits with helping him shape his view on risk given the industry's return distributions. He then moved into VC during the tech bubble, another formative industry to his current outlook. And then following that, he moved into a series of CIO roles. First with Jerry Kohlberg, one of the K's in KKR, then BGC, a large hospital system in Missouri, then as the CIO of the University of Pittsburgh Endowment before starting at Geisinger. In this episode, Andy and Greg will cover what is Geisinger, including its background, what do cash flows and requirements look like for a hospital foundation, how they differ from a university, how does Greg think about time and the fundamentals of the assets they're looking to materialize, the importance of communication with your investment committee, and how we can apply the way surfers understand waves to how we invest. Enjoy. Okay, Greg Schuler, welcome to the Value Perspective podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here. How are you? Great, Andy. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Where in the world do we, we find you today? Yeah, we're based in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, home of the Penguins. Yeah, and a number of good sporting teams there as well. So, and the Steelers, yes. I can't forget them. <laughs> Now, let's start from the very top. This series is about asset allocators, their decision-making process, and some of the constraints that they may face. And with that in mind, why don't you start by giving us your history as an asset allocator? Yeah, I started my career out actually in the oil industry. I began out in the field with mobile oil, which candidly was one of the most important shapers of who I am today as an investor. It really caused me to focus on things fundamentally and what the drivers of value are. And uh, as everyone knows, I mean, the oil and gas industry, they're great risk takers with a very difficult return distribution. So I actually started on the oil industry when oil was 
12 to 13 dollars a barrel so it was a great time as a young guy to start out in the industry so for mobile i actually worked at sun microsystems in the venture capital group so another great experience i was actually at sun in the venture capital group there during the last tech bubble and so it was a great shaper again of fundamentals of seeing a period of time when euphoria and momentum took the market away i think very similar to what we saw in 21 and 22 where fundamentals were thrown out the window so again another great shaper and i was very blessed to be at sun during that period of time i worked at Aetna for five years in the hedge fund group and uh, from there i actually worked at jerry kohlberg's family office for seven years jerry was the founder of KKR. So a wonderful man and a wonderful mentor. And I learned so much from Jerry where I'd have lunch with Jerry several times a week. And so he was a great storyteller and obviously had a lot of great stories. And so Jerry had an important imprint on me as an investor to really, again, understand things fundamentally. From there, I worked at BJC for seven years in St. Louis, was the CIO there, just as I was the CIO at um, the Kohlberg family office. After seven years at BJC, which was a large hospital system in Missouri, uh, I worked at the University of Pittsburgh at the endowment there for three years as a CIO. And uh, in my most recent position, I work at Geisinger, which is a large hospital system in university in central Pennsylvania. That's great. That's a, an incredibly varied um, background there. We'll definitely pick up on a couple of those aspects going through um, our chat. The, can we start maybe, and particularly because in the UK and, and in Europe more broadly, that the hospital systems do work a little bit differently. So can you talk a little bit about Geisinger, how they're set up and and talk maybe a little bit about some of the cash flow considerations that you have when trying to find funding for, for a hospital foundation. Yeah, the best analogy I could give for everyone is that it's really a combination of a insurance company and uh, a university endowment. And the genesis of that is, is that the Geisinger was founded back in 1915 by Abigail Geisinger. And we have 10 hospitals in central central and eastern Pennsylvania. And we also have a university that has a medical school, nursing school, and a graduate school for bioscience. And so we're a unique combination of academic and hospitals. But most importantly, in America, hospitals are an important provider of hospital services, not just to those that are insured, but it is a legal and mandated requirement in the US that if you show up at a emergency room that you have to get medical assistance. So most people don't know outside of the hospital industry that people actually do get free medical coverage in a significant way. And Geisinger and all the hospital systems across America do provide billions of dollars of free medical coverage every year to people as a result of the legislated mandate around emergency rooms. So the consideration here is COVID actually was a very difficult time for hospital systems. And that was because if you think of what the big revenue driver is for hospital systems, it's actually insured coverage with providers like Aetna, Cigna, Kaiser, where your high margin business are actually the insured people that show up for voluntary, non-voluntary surgery, which gives us the margin to provide that free medical coverage that I discussed. And so depending on the state and your Medicare, Medicaid weight, your margins at the EBITDA level can be anywhere from 5 to 12%. 
relatively skinny versus many industries. And your operating margin will be somewhere around 2 to 5%, again, very skinny. So if you think of periods like COVID, almost every hospital system in America was cash flow negative for two years. And so it became a very challenging time for people in my chair because you actually had to free up operating capital to support the business because we were cash flow negatives for such a long period of time. So the difference between a hospital system and a university endowment is we actually had to crack into the operating assets to support our core mission, which in most cases, the universities didn't need to do that. Their revenue from tuition remained sustained during that difficult COVID period. So cash flow requirements were a much bigger consideration for us at a hospital system than an endow- a traditional endowment or insurer. And and I guess the COVID period was quite exceptional, but would would you say that the requirements from a cash flow perspective are, are a bit lumpier than they would be for a university endowment? Well, lumpier in the sense that we have a, a much greater exposure to the tale of unexpected outcomes. And so I think, you know, COVID's a good example. I don't think anyone in 2019 was managing their balance sheet at the hospital systems or universities for that matter, that obviously our business models were going to be very challenged at both institutions, right, universities, and that most people were attending class from home which challenged the business model, but they were able to to sustain uh, tuition through that period versus hospital systems, many forms of voluntary surgery ceased. So our high margin business actually disappeared. So I don't think anyone in 2019 would have expected that. Um, So, uh, you know, really we're short volatility for large unexpected outcomes where we got to always be thinking about liquidity even when we don't think we need it yeah okay understood and and then you you did touch on medicare and medicaid and there must be some other external factors which you probably have to take into account do do changes in the political landscape for hospitals have some bearing on the way that you will manage the money i mean that's always a consideration right medicare and medicaid is an important part of the mix i think um, while it is a very important part of our mission it is the high margin business, which isn't Medicare and Medicaid, which supports what we do. So you have to be laser focused on what's that ratio between Medicare, Medicaid and insured business, which will be the big driver of your margin. So people are laser focused on that to determine what are my cash requirements. Understood. Okay. I think, I think we've got a good sense of exactly how, how that works and some of the cash flow constraints which you have on you and the, the sort of things that you have to consider sitting in your seat. So maybe we can turn to the investment side now. Do you want to give a, a kind of very broad introduction to how you think about um, investing, your philosophies which underpin your decisions um, when you're investing? Yeah. So I think the key part of our philosophy really is driven from asset allocation. I mean, I think it's an overused term that people will say asset allocation is the key driver, but in many cases, people aren't willing to vary from their asset allocation mix to take advantage of opportunities. And I would say that we're a little bit different in that we're very focused on the bottom-up fundamentals of everything we do and does it make sense to take that risk? And, you know, liquidity is probably the least focused on risk that we take. And if you think about where we started this conversation, I think people give liquidity away very cheaply too easily. And we're very focused on, you know, why do private credit when I can do double BCLOs or catastrophe bonds that are at yields 
in the mid-teens, which would be stretch objectives for private credit. And so we're very focused on, are there liquid tools that we can focus on that are maybe more esoteric that scare some people, where if we can model the risks to understand when do they fail, um, that's really our key tenet is asset allocation is the key driver of returns. Yes, alpha is important, it's extremely important, but when it makes sense, we take tilts within our portfolio to capitalize on things. And there's several things going on right now, for example. I mean, the mispricing that we see between small cap and large cap in the U.S. is a good example. I think uh, people should be leaning pretty heavily into small cap at this point, or high yields a good example. Uh, I think double B CLOs and catastrophe bonds, we were very aggressive into that in the middle of last year because of the much higher yields, expected yields that we had in those two asset classes versus high yields, you know, our expected returns were somewhere risk adjusted or loss adjusted five points higher in CLOs and catastrophe bonds than they were in high yields. So asset allocation really is the big driver for us is that we don't just blindly plow ourselves into our benchmarks. We're very focused on uh, do our benchmarks make sense? And an obvious one right now is the Magnificent Seven. If people aren't leaning out of growth in a meaningful way right now, we think that's going to be a big pain trade over the next 24 months when you see what's going on with the Magnificent Seven and the excessive concentration of um, large cap growth names in the S&P 500 and the Russell 1000. So we we aren't active macro traders, but we certainly look at the fundamentals of what we do bottom up to understand do our benchmarks make sense and where should we be adjusting our risk to take advantage of things that are occurring around us? Great. Okay. And um, you know, like you, we like to think about things from a, a bottom-up uh, fundamental perspective as well. And sometimes it can take time for those uh, fundamentals to be realised. So maybe we can talk a little bit about time and, and how you think about that. You touched on liquidity because that's one element of time and having to lock up money for periods of time when you may need it for the foundation. But uh, more broadly, how would you think about uh, time and how long you're willing to wait for the fundamentals to realize themselves? Well, that's a great point, Andy. I mean, I think that probably is the greatest risk we face is it's in many cases, it's almost not our willingness to take underperformance, which obviously is what's embedded in the notion of time. But is our investment committee's ability to take that underperformance when we do tilts? And so as we think about the things that we do in the portfolio, we're very focused on are we going to be able to stay in that trade if it becomes painful? And a big part of what I do is educating our investment committee on why are we doing things? And so, for example, back to the double BCLO catastrophe bond trade. I think it's educating them on why did we do this versus high yield or why have we tilted out of venture capital in 21 and 22 and to a certain extent, even 23. So it's educating them on these tilts. Why are we doing them? Why do they make sense? Because we know things are going to go wrong. We know we're going to have problems and it's better to get your investment investment committee ready for the problem so that to your point andy we can expand any time period that we have to ensure that we can stay in things when they make the most sense that's that's really interesting it because it's an element of buying some time for yourself with communicating well with the investment committee and understanding the risk that they should be aware of 
I think at many times investment committees think they're long-term investors, but it's inevitable when you see losses show up, the investment committee emotionally becomes very distracted during those periods of underperformance. Thanks very much. So we touched on the investment committee. Could could you also talk a little bit about um, how you can create a good decision-making environment? What are the things that you do to try and make sure that you're making good decisions and then communicating them well with the investment committee? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. I mean, I think as things always are, I think you have to develop, it has to be very intentional communication. And so our team, for example, we have an open air concept here where everyone else hears everyone else's conversations. And so everyone's here is highly encouraged to ask questions or share insights because we have a lot of highly experienced people here where we we encourage people to challenge notions, ideas, concepts, and um, data. And so within our own team, we highly um, encourage open communication and challenging the concepts. But equally as important at the investment committee level, it's active dialogue off cycle out of quarterly meetings with the IC members so that when you're traveling, you go have lunch or dinner with them to share ideas and concepts and understand what their pain points and when they could show up. But it's also at those quarterly meetings to educate them on why certain things don't make sense. For example, why the Magnificent Seven makes no sense right now. And it is time, Andy, that will eventually unravel that. I mean, Apple has had four recurring quarters of no revenue growth, yet it's trading at 30 times PE. Well, I would suggest that isn't something that's sustainable that will eventually reverse itself. And uh, the concentration of the Magnificent Seven in the Russell 1000 and the S&P 500, that will also eventually reverse itself. I'm not smart enough to know why or when, but if I'm given enough time, I know that if I go equally weighted against that, that I'm going to win on that over a period of time. So it's educating our investment committee on the things that don't make sense and why we're leaning away from them, even though our benchmark would cause us to hold them during those periods. And so really education is so critical at the investment committee level to take into the second or third derivative of why you're doing something. And ultimately you got to look different than your benchmarks to outperform. I mean, that's a, a key Howard Marks tenant, right? You can't expect to outperform if you don't look different than others. And so, and that's, again, educating our investment committee and the Geisinger executive on why we're doing things that will, will again, go wrong for periods of time. It will happen that I'm too early on small cap or um, I'm too early on equally weighted. So I just make sure I size things right when we first do it so that we can increase when we're wrong. But it's educating everyone on our team, Geisinger Executive, and our investment committee on why we do things. You have to do it well before the problems ever show up. Yeah, it sounds, though, a little bit like you're following the numbers, that it's the probabilities, putting the probabilities in your favour, and over time that should reward you, which loosely relates to Moneyball, which I think is something which we, we've talked about um, in, in the past, the book and the, the film. Are there any aspects of that which you use at Geisinger to either inform your decision-making or think about the probabilities being in your favor, which may be not the conventional wisdom um, at, the, at any point in time? Yeah, I think, you know, let's let's focus on venture capital over the last couple of years, right? I mean, it's back to the fundamental tenets of what drives returns. It's ownership levels at entry point. 
It's also my ability to generate DPI during various periods. And it's acknowledgement that my DPI retracts bull markets and it extends during bear markets. And so with the euphoria we had in 21 and 22, where we had ownership interest coming down dramatically at the venture capital level, and we had significant write-ups with no DPI, that was a signal to us that um, it's time to uh, significantly slow down venture commitments. And we're still slowing down our venture commitments. We think the problems still haven't shown up entirely yet because we know that write-downs become very protracted. And we, you know, unfortunately, I'm just old enough to remember the tech bubble of uh, 2000. These things go on for a much longer period of time than you would expect. And I think people still haven't seen all the pain out of venture yet. So that would be, so back to Moneyball, it's what do people value? And I think in venture, for example, I think people were just chasing almost randomly some of these venture capitalists that others liked. They weren't focused on the fundamentals of what was actually going to be driving venture returns. And I think those that overweighted and were really chasing venture in 21 and 22 are going to be paying for that mistake for a number of years in their portfolios. And so we're very focused on the principles of Moneyball of what do people misprice? I think we all are in a world where ESG is important during this environment, but I think I think ESG is a misused term where you really want to have an impact with ESG. And so if you think about things like fossil fuels-based electrical generation or fossil fuels themselves, you know, people are leaning away from those two things because of greenhouse gas emissions. I think the reality of it is if you really want to have an ESG impact, you have to invest into those categories. And the easiest lever to push if you're really really worried about greenhouse gas emissions is methane emissions. You know, in the US, methane emissions are roughly 4% of our GHG footprint, and that comes from the wellhead. And the IEA estimates that roughly 70% of those methane emissions can be recaptured with almost no cost because the obviously there's a cost that's being lost when natural gas is released and you're not selling it. So so I think from a moneyball perspective people hate natural gas, they hate oil. There's a growing dislike of fossil fuels electrical generation, you know, I think um whether it's a Republican or a Democrat administration, we're doing a very bad job of educating people on how electricity is really generated. And I think if people really dug into it, they would realize the energy transition needs to be a slow transition from coal to oil to natural gas to nuclear and alternative energy. And so we think people have been far too aggressive on the dislike of um, fossil fuels. So when we invest in fossil fuels, we're very focused on what is the program that the manager has in place to reduce methane emissions. And we'd like to see actual hard data around when you took over the property, what were the methane emissions? And that's, this just doesn't happen accidentally. They have to have a very developed LIDAR program around methane emissions. And then we want to see a very specific methane recapture program on the reduction of methane. And in many cases, the managers don't even have methane recapture programs. And so it's working with them to implement that program. 
and to educate them that this is an important part of their business model going forward. So in the money ball vernacular, people hate fossil fuels. It's ESG driven. We actually take a different tact. We can get involved to actually reduce methane emissions, have a significantly positive impact on the environment. It's quantifiable, which is the problem with ESG. It's almost inevitably unquantifiable. And then there's the second, second benefit of fossil fuels is actually carbon recapture and injection. And if you look at the science of carbon recapture and injection, you almost inevitably need void from empty reserves. And so given the U.S. has been one of the major um, oil and gas producers for over 100 years, we have significant volumetric availability for carbon recapture and rejection. And in fact, the IEA estimates that the U.S. has roughly 250 billion tons of volumetric space for injection. And so again, from an ESG perspective, this is another great solution for, yes, we can recapture the, the carbon, but we can also inject it. And so we're very focused on in Moneyball again. People hate it, but what do we think people misunderstand? Mm. And we think people misunderstand is that they can have an immediate ESG impact in ways that they can't in other parts of the portfolio that can have a very positive outcome for, for greenhouse gas emissions. Yeah, thank you very much for that. There's a, Both of those answers, both VC and uh, the oil and gas, touches a bit on your history and your, your background, uh, working for mobile at one point in time, but also um, working inside a, a VC as well. Um, just on the VC side, how 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 is it watching from the outside something that you're in that industry during the dot-com boom and then watching a similar sort of thing play out 20 years later, but you're a little bit more on the periphery of it? Yeah. You know, I think you, you mentioned the book Moneyball. You know, I think an even more relevant book is Fooled by Randomness. And I think in that book, Nassim spends an inordinate amount of time on mistaking performance for capability. And in many cases, it's statistically just luck. And I think in many cases, I think that's what's happened in venture. It's the low interest rate environment that the Fed has induced over the last 15 years has been the primary catalyst for growth stocks and venture. I think it's people focus very little time on what actually drives venture returns. When is it successful and unsuccessful? And I think that carries itself to geography. I I feel a, a lot of confusion on why people spend so much time in Asia with respect to venture. We live in the world's greatest environment in the U.S. for tech. I think you have to really look on a risk-adjusted basis. Are you really going to get returns that are superior to the U.S. venture programs versus what you get in places like India, Southeast Asia, China? And again, back to fooled by randomness, you have to look at the full story. And the full story is once your DPI equals your TVPI, the story's done. And in many cases, the story hasn't completed for many of these environments. And so to answer your question, Andy, I think looking at venture, we're very focused on what's the geography? Can we get at the key levers of return, which are ownership, sourcing, elite management teams? But also, can you get yourself to DPI? And when you put that formula together, 
you have to be very focused across geography, vintage, and I think most people don't like to hear this, but I think you actually have to speed programs up and slow programs down according to the environment we're in. And I think maybe in in 24, maybe 25, these are going to be time periods to speed up your venture program after a number of years of slowing them down. So I think venture is a place where people have been um, fooled by their capabilities that we've just had a tremendous bull market for growth stocks with little focus on what are the fundamental drivers. And they're going to have significant problems in their programs because they actually accelerated during exactly the wrong periods of 20, 21, and 22. And again, venture is a problem that lives with you for years, not months. So that's the learning from being at Sun is you can't just commit every year to venture. You got to be more intelligent than that and look at the fundamental drivers of the return to determine, am I going to commit myself to a very long-tailed asset? That's um, really interesting. Thank you. I'm going to change tack a little bit, um, but we, we've already started talking about this topic to some degree when you brought up all by randomness. So Charlie Munger obviously sadly passed away, and he was a big proponent of talking about mental models and ideas which you can take from other walks of life and, and apply, in this case, to, to investing. Are there any particularly pertinent mental models that you've used or, uh, or you read about uh, on a regular basis that you think is very relevant for uh, for investing and how you make your decisions? Yeah, I think, you know, I think nature is actually a great analogy to the way that you need to think about investing. And I think a great book that's in, that illustrates that's a book called The Wave. And it's a fascinating book that talks about how two different cohorts react to waves. One are mariners, where they're afraid of large waves, and conversely, surfers that embrace large waves and, in fact, seek them out. And the book is fascinating in the sense that many of the great surfers like Laird Hamilton, where you think that they're cultural icons that spend very little time on their trade and spend a lot of time on other things. The reality of it is that Laird Hamilton was very focused on what creates big waves and when are the waves going to be manageable. You can actually surf on them. And sometimes as a risk taker, you know the environment is just going to be too aggressive and too high risk and Laird would just step out of it. Versus mariners, where they're just constantly afraid of waves rather than trying to understand what causes these big waves and these what scared them the most were the 100-foot rogue waves. So I think this is a great analogy for investing. And this, again, comes out of fooled by randomness is You've got to accept that risk is an inevitability of what we do. You're going to be wrong for your period of time. There's going to be periods where you're going to underperform. But essentially, like Laird Hamilton, you've got to understand what makes the big waves, what makes the big venture returns, and what makes the big venture losses. And so we need to be very focused on nature of unexpected things are going to happen. And if you look at how large waves are created through either a tsunami or wind, or reefs in unexpected places, you need to understand what causes that. And if credit spreads and the yield curve is too tight, you need to find something else to do and not just blindly pile into your benchmark because that's what you're evaluated against. You got to be willing to take alternative paths that are more prudent and more intelligent to support your core mission. Because again, that's what this is about, supporting the great mission of Geisinger to provide free healthcare to people 
and provide a great education to doctors, nurses, and bioscientists. That's ultimately why we do this, and not to just blindly take risks that could challenge our core mission. Yeah. By the way, thank you very much for recommending The Wave in, in the run-up to this. Um, both myself and Juan went, went away and read it and thought it was a fantastic book with lots of lots of uh, parallels with, with investing. So th- thank you for that. Thank you. But it, it, it does touch on risk as well a little bit. And, and you, you spoke about risk in, in terms of describing uh, the book and why some people will go towards um, what would be perceived to be risky situations, such as big waves, uh, and others will try and avoid it at all, all costs. And uh, something you said did remind me of something which Howard Marx has said in the past, which risk is more things can happen than, than do happen. How do you think about risk and how do you manage risk uh, at Geisinger? Yeah, I mean, I think the Howard Marks analogy is a great one, right? I mean, one of his great axioms is when things are the cheapest, your risk is actually the lowest. And I think that's the problem in many cases. As, again, asset allocation is our key return driver. Can we add alpha in various places? 100%. And we're focused every day on generating alpha. But the big returns, the big alpha is going to come from asset allocation. It's going to come from three years ago when the yield curves buried and credit OAS is buried, avoiding high yields when it backs up. That's going to be your big return generator, avoiding the big problems when they don't make any fundamental sense. And so that to me, that isn't high risk, that's low risk. You know, you were astute earlier, Andy, when you asked about time. Am I going to be right in one year? I don't know the answer to that. Am I going to be right in three years? I'm pretty certain that I will be. What will be the catalyst? I have no idea. I'm not smart enough to know that. But I am smart enough to know when I've got a U.S. Treasury curve that's buried because of an excessively stimulative Fed policy, that eventually I'm going to be right and that yield curve is going to back up and credit OAS is going to get very challenged. And so... We, we think actually that's a low-risk way to invest. Uh, venture, let's go back to venture. When, uh, when my uh, ownership target is 15 to 20% and I'm only getting 5 to 8% because valuations are excessive, that's not a time when we want to invest. We don't see that as low-risk, high-risk, pardon me. We see that as low-risk. And so fundamentally looking at things that are attractive that's when we want to put money to work. Let's focus on oil and gas. When I can buy producing oil and gas assets at three times EBITDA, that's low risk. That's not high risk. Um, same thing with fossil fuel-based uh, electrical generation. We're buying those things. We're three cash flow yields in the low 20s. That's low risk. That's not high risk. And so we to the, use Howard Marks axioms, we move towards things when they're at their point of the lowest risk. And yes, we take tracking risk versus our benchmark, but I'm willing to bet over three years that when double B CLOs have a net expected yield five points higher than high yield, that I'm going to win that bet over a three-year period. So that really is the fundamental tenant for us is look for analogies that are similar, maybe even better from a risk perspective with much higher returns. That's our key tenant. And do you think these opportunities arise? So it, it sounds as though not doing the silly thing is is quite a, a bit of what you're talking about there. When when things are very tight and everyone's overexcited about them, you, you try and move away from that and, and spend time where where it's unloved. Do, do you think this is largely an edge which is psychological? So it's the fact that people love to be sucked into those 
um, herd areas of the market? Or do you think there's something else at play here? Yeah, I think for all of us, I think the most difficult part of what we do actually isn't the analysis, it's the psychology, right? None of us want to stand in front of our investment committee and say we've made a mistake and we've done something silly. For all of us, that's terrifying, right? But as a leader, I think you have to spend a lot of time on, in fact, you got to have an environment where people are willing to underperform because if you're not willing to underperform, you're not going to outperform. And so it's getting everyone prepped mentally for those periods of underperformance. And most importantly, it's getting our executive, Guy Singer executive, our CEO and our CFO mentally prepared for, we do common sense things that will sometimes underperform for a period of time. And also our investment committee, you got to get them mentally prepared for that. It's going to happen, but I can assure you that, and, and this is now me speaking to the investment committee, I can assure you that this is a much lower risk way for us to invest over the long term. Um, and so it's it's this is all about the mental capacity to be willing to underperform and not just chase things because endowment X will underperform at the same time as me and that provides me with great comfort. In fact, that is the worst thing I could do for my mission. I'm here to serve my mission. It's a nonprofit mission, but it's a very worthwhile mission for the state of Pennsylvania. So. I have to do what's right for my mission and generate a portfolio that will support our mission over the long term with the least amount of volatility. So, But there's going to be unexpected outcomes. There's going to be COVIDs. There's going to be geological events. There's going to be unanticipated things. Yes, I'm going to lose money. But over the long term, I should be able to outperform if I just use common sense. And uh, I guess you touched on there with the unexpected uh, events, you know, the probabilistic nature of of investing and the the difficulty sometimes, and I think it relates directly with your conversations you might have with the investment committee, is to explain probabilistic um, outcomes to people who would just rather hear, well, it's going to be 8% every year for the next 10 years. So how how do you set about, one, thinking about probabilistic, uh, think about things probabilistically, but then two, communicating that effectively? Yeah, let's let's use high yields as an example. So when we made the decision to do double BCLOs and catastrophe bonds, you can actually stack that distribution up against high yield. And not only can you stack that distribution up against high yield, we can also look at the interrelationship with other asset categories. And so so it's a very I won't say easy comparison, but it's a comparison that when I go back to the investment committee, you talk about what are the risk risk characteristics of high yield? What are the risk characteristics of catastrophe bonds? What are the risk characteristics of double BCLOs? And what you see when you look at those two categories versus high yield, you see very quickly that my periods of non-performance and defaults are much lower than high yield. So in catastrophe bonds in particular, where I only have one coupon payment of risk, I have no principal risk because it's fully collateralized. So in many instances, catastrophe bonds are far superior from a credit perspective. And at the same time, I'm getting a, a net yield that's five points higher. I think any anyone looks at that and says, well, that's common sense. Why, why would I ever do high yield in that scenario? But that's the current environment. That wasn't the case for catastrophe bonds three, four years ago because of the fact that we had the short-term part of the yield curve buried at sub 1%, in fact, at 25 basis points. 
And there is excess capital in the insurance space. And so this dynamic in catastrophe bonds didn't look like this three, four years ago. So will we always be in catastrophe bonds? Who knows? But we'll be there as long as this dynamic exists. And so, Andy, what you need to do is you need to stack up all the liquidity characteristics, the default characteristics, the coupon characteristics, et cetera, to understand uh, what are the risks I'm taking. And then you communicate that with the, your executive and your investment committee so they understand why we're doing something. But my, my final question on risk, you started your career in the oil and gas industry. And my understanding as an outsider is that the risk dynamics in that are, are quite binary. You know, either you strike gold, gold or oil, and uh, and you make a lot of money, or otherwise, you know, things can go to zero. Did that inform the way you think about risk at all? Having that so early on in your career? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, oil. The real the reality is, oil is a statistical business. It's it's back to your question earlier that was great, which is about time, and. The oil and gas industry will eventually be successful from a statistical perspective. If I've given enough time and my capital base is committed, statistically, I can create probability curves that tell me what should the outcome look like. So, you know, I might be looking for heads and I flip three tails, but eventually I'll get the distribution that I'm looking for if you give me enough flips. And I think that's the reality of the oil industry, you know, depending on are you wildcatting or are you just doing step out drilling? That's a statistic. Many cases, that's a statistical play. And if I'm given enough time and enough capital, I'll prove myself right. And I think that's something that shaped the way I look at the world going forward is you always got to look at when I do something, am I going to be able to stay, stay in it for long enough to take advantage of the mispricing I'm seeing? No, that's, that's brilliant. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Um, there's one question that we always ask all of our guests, which is about books and book recommendations. You, you mentioned The Wave, which uh, I, I can now recommend as well as you recommending. But are there any other books out there which you think are um, worth recommending to listeners? Yeah, I think Fooled by Randomness is a great one that we talked about. I think another great author from the 70s is Pierre Burden. And I think Pierre Burden created some really interesting books where he talked about history, but what's embedded in their investors is really the history of outcomes. And so two great books. One is The Last Spike, where it's, it's an interesting look at how Canada was created. But also what was interesting is they mania bubbles that came out of um, came out of the building of the Canadian Railroad and really who won and who lost from an investment perspective. And then another great book is Gold Rush, where he talks about the Yukon and the, the Alaskan Gold Rush. And again, who were the winners and losers from that and how many, what the winners really were, were the early players who got out very quickly and sold, but also the people that provided the pick and shovel. So it's pretty intuitive, but it's fascinating that there's validation in both books that you actually got to create liquidity to win. It isn't just about mark to market. You got to be able to liquidate your holdings and crystallize gains for this to win. And I think that's a misunderstood axiom when you think about venture and in some cases buyout and private credit. It's not about my current yield, but am I going to get my principal back and how long is it going to take? And so those are two great reads that I'd, that I'd suggest to anyone. Greg, uh, that, this has been a really interesting conversation. Thank you very much for joining us. Good luck with your mission at Geisinger. And uh, I thank you for coming on the show. 
Thanks for having me. It's, it's been great. Have a great 2024. Thank you. You too.